Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today we're back with our third part of our Torah series looking at the first five books of the Old Testament. And today we're going to get started with Exodus. So Scott Frizzell will be teaching us. Scott is an expert on these first five books of the Bible. He's done a lot with the children's ministry and he's also a history teacher. So very excited for him to take on the mantle of teaching the first 18 chapters of Exodus this morning. We'll get into Moses, we'll get into Egypt, the plagues, a lot of really fun stuff today. I'm very much looking forward to it. Let's go right now to Scott. All right, so now that the pressure is on, as Kyle has probably overbuilt me up on this, I will say it was really interesting preparing for this class because there was a run of like five years uh, where in our sixth grade class we taught Genesis to Deuteronomy from August to May, and that was it. So I know the stories incredibly well, but preparing for an adult class versus like teaching the basic facts of all the stories is totally different. Um, So we'll see how this goes. Um, So real quickly to get started, what is it uh, about Christianity that appeals to people? What about it makes people interested or drawn in? This is the free response section. Yeah, sure. That's great. I think it, it offers hope. Hope. Okay. What else? What do you think people like about Christianity? Like, if you talk to someone on the street and you're having a great Jesus conversation, which I'm sure we all have with great regularity, right, with random people, um, what resonates with them? What do you think they like about it that they go, I could get behind something like that? So, hope. Anything else? I think prayer. Prayer. Yeah. Having someone to be able to pray with or pray to. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Redemption. The idea of redemption. Absolutely. I think that very much resonates today. Okay, flip Justice. it. Yeah. Do what? Justice. Justice, yeah. I think so. In certain contexts, yeah, right? The justice we like. The justice, the good kind of justice, right? The justice that benefits us. Okay, flip it. If you're having that random conversation with that stranger, what makes them say, yeah, I'm out? Justice. Justice, the <laughs> other kind of justice. The kind we don't like. Yeah, I was going to say maybe that they don't always see the things that, you know, we say we stand for, like love right. everyone and merciful and mm-hmm. justice. And maybe they don't always see that in us, and so they're like, oh. Right. Whether it's kind of not understanding something or even the hypocrisy, one of the two, something that something doesn't add up. Anything else? Right. Those are all really good, and that's kind of what I was thinking too when I was thinking through it, because it kind of hit me when Kyle was teaching last week, and he was talking about the uh, the God of the Old Testament versus Jesus, right? And we all feel pretty good about Jesus because we've kind of got him painted the way we want him maybe skimming some stories and not paying attention to others, but we kind of have a good idea of what we think he's about. And then there's this God of the Old Testament that's killing babies and destroying civilizations. And it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know that I'm okay with that. That feels a little more uncomfortable, Uh, which is kind of a weird spot to be in when we're looking at the book of Exodus. And the first half of Exodus um, is the plagues um, and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. Um, 
and it's kind of troublesome to sit with and try to make it gel really well with this idea, this really fuzzy, warm feeling of redemption, um, grace, the good kind of justice, not the bad kind of justice. Um, that's what we'll try to do today. So um, when I was just getting started in history grad school, uh, one of the first conversations, I remember it really well, um, I was sitting in a room with about eight other people. Um, this was the start of my African American history program, so I'm the only white guy in the room. It's not really relevant to the story, but it's in my memory, because it was very shocking, because I'd never experienced that in a classroom before, like being the minority. Um, and so we're sitting around the room, and the professor comes in, and the professor's all, you know, he's excited, he's going to blow all of our minds on day one. And he's like, well, what is history? And so, of course, you know, this crazy debate ensues, and we argue with each other, and everyone has these, oh, no, yeah, oh, yeah, moments the whole time, you know. It's like, oh, I, did, I made the right decision. I need to be a history professor. This is great. Um, this is just how dorky the world of history is that we're having this kind of moment over the debate of what history is. Um, but so we get into it and then he starts crossing over into math, which I don't like very much, and kind of geometry. He's like, so what is history? If history's a shape, what is it? I'm like, what is this? Like, where did this <laughs> professor come from? Like some oh, baked tippy who's like still hanging around the university or something. It's like, is history a line? Like, is it linear? Which is kind of what Eric was talking a little bit about this morning. Uh, if you haven't yet, it's going to be great. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, is, are, is, is history just a straight progression and you're moving forward all the time? And everyone's like, oh no, it's not. History is cyclical. And we start talking about fashions, right, that are in vogue right now, that were actually in vogue 30 years ago, which were, you know, 30 years, you know, kind of, oh, but no, it's different. It's not quite the same. Uh, it's a slinky, which is just still in my head, like, in my head now, history is a slinky, like, because it's cyclical, but it's moving forward. But there's shades of things in the past, like, that is pretty good. I don't think that's a mathematical term. Like, I don't know how to chart. It's a shape. It's not a shape. You could probably graph a slinky if you used, like, the Z axis, I guess. But I don't know. But I think that's one of the reasons that um, Exodus can be so valuable to us, because it is that essential backstory, right? Um, when we're trying to understand the whole story of the Bible, right, not the story of the New Testament, but the story of the entire Bible, which I think adds a lot of depth to what God, uh, to God's purpose for us, to what God wants, uh, his desires, right? Having all the parts of the slinky at the beginning part kind of help inform that. It doesn't mean that it's not incredibly cyclical and there's not shades of the same thing happening over and over again, but it adds depth and heft to the story um, as we're going wrong. So I think especially in Exodus, we're going to see some examples of kind of God's, what I've called God's full nature, right? Not the warm, fuzzy, limited Jesus New Testament idea, you know, where we're ignoring the stuff we don't like in the New Testament. It's just so Jesus is here to love all of us the end. Um, we kind of see some more and we see the, the justice that, that we don't like. Um, and we also kind of add to this, the grand narrative, right? Sorry, that's a history thing, but kind of the adding to the slinky, right? How does it all fold together to make sense? And then especially in Exodus, more so, I think, than we saw elsewhere, there's a ton of foreshadowing uh, that really resonates with us today as Christians and as we're entering Easter season um, as well. So um, let's watch the Exodus video, and then we will go from there. Yeah. All right. So, um, by way of review, right, Genesis, we have two parts, but the main idea behind Genesis, right, is this promise 
um, that's delivered to Abraham to restore what was in chapter 1 of Genesis, right? To restore this harmony uh, between man and God. So we have this promise to Abraham to build a great people and a great land, great savior, right? All these things that we went through. And we kind of went through that promise being handed down from family member to family member last week with Kyle from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So when we pick up today, um, they're all living in Egypt because remember they went to where Joseph was at the time. And uh, many years have passed. So we've got a ton more Israelites than were there, which we already had the 12 sons there. So they start having kids, their kids start having kids. It doesn't take long for the population to just explode. Um, and they become an annoyance to Egypt, uh, especially the Egypt, the Pharaoh who takes power, who it said, the Bible tells us, does not remember Joseph, right? So when they were given this, the prized land of Goshen and told to, it was theirs to do with as they please, um, it was done because Joseph had done great things for Egypt. But when that's erased from memory, kind of that changes the setup. So the first half of Exodus, we can kind of break down into four parts. And we're going to spend a lot more time in one than the other four. But so part one, Pharaoh gets mad at the Israelites, right? So what are these people doing here? Well, you've got to get rid of them, right? Throw the baby boys in the Nile. Then part two, the ten plagues. So we'll have talk VBS. Part three, the Red Sea, right? They cross, the God parts the Red Sea, they cross, and then it destroys Pharaoh um, and their eventual deliverance from Egypt. And then part four is the beginning of their time in the desert. Um, spoiler, the Israelites are in the desert, the rest of the Torah. Um, but this is the part before they get the Ten Commandments, before they get the tabernacle. So it's kind of just a quick glimpse of what, what is to come. So if we're kind of I'm going to try to go through each part a little bit and, and some things we kind of want to think about. So in part one, um, when we see the anger of Pharaoh at these Israelites taking this prized land, um, we can still already see God kind of planting the seeds of where this story is going, right? He's taking what is a very terrible moment, right? The death of every baby boy in Israel. And he's say, provided for the saving of Moses, right? Who gets put in the basket, grows up in Pharaoh's household. Um, and he's already kind of laying the groundwork for the redemption of his people, okay? Um, so even though things look kind of glum to Israelites who are sitting in the moment, right? If we're sitting in their shoes and all we see is, wow, things got bad really fast. What is going to happen here? He's already laying the groundwork before they even started to think about that, really. Um, with Moses being planted uh, for that exact moment. But then where I think where the story gets a bit more interesting is after Moses eventually flees Egypt, right? Remember, he kills an Egyptian. He flees to um, Sinai, gets married, lives there for quite a number of years. And then eventually God speaks to him in the burning bush and he returns. God sends him to deliver them. Um, but we know early on um, that God anticipates it to be a struggle. Like God isn't saying, go in, tell Pharaoh to let them go, and then he'll eventually let them go and you'll go on. Like he's like, He's not going to do it unless I compel him with my power. So like he knows walking in that this is going to be some sort of epic showdown. And he picks Moses, who's terrified at the idea of speaking in public. Uh, so, you know, drags Aaron along with him. Um, but then from there on, when he enters Egypt and he starts, you know, raining down plagues on the people, right, on the Egyptians, um, that's kind of the part of Exodus that I think we have the most familiarity with, right? Because it's like, when I was growing up, it was VBS here every six years, because there were six VBS scripts. So every sixth year, it was the 10 plagues, 
Um, so I saw it three times before I became an adult, I guess. Um, and I don't think that that's uncommon at other churches. Um, so kind of using your common knowledge of the 10 plagues, in what ways do you see the uh, connections between the story of the plagues and the Exodus connecting it to maybe what we'd call New Testament Christianity, right? This idea of Jesus. What are the connections that you see? You don't have to full the full answer, just any one thing. Could you give us an example? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, when the Passover feast happens, right, we've got a lot of symbolism in the Passover feast, but the idea that there's a lamb slaughtered, the blood provides that deliverance, right? So that's a pretty easy connection with God, right? Sorry, that was a poorly worded question. We won't. We don't no, have to no, go there. Okay. We're just not smart. I think like. Uh, the, the <laughs> don't long, say that. Like the longing for justice. Longing for justice. You typically, don't want justice when you're in the wrong. When you're being wrong, you want justice. That's kind of story there. It's the mm-hmm. Crying out for justice. Okay, a longing for justice. Good justice, right? <coughs> From earlier in class, the good justice we like. Okay. Yeah, like you said, like death of a lamb, but also death of a son. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, yeah. There's a lot of shadows, man. When I was reading back through it, it just kept hitting me. It's like, oh, and that, and that. Um, I mean, I don't know if it connects to, you know, when Jesus was born, and then all the firstborn were killed, or mm-hmm. they're, they're killing all the kids under a certain age, mm-hmm. and they actually went to Egypt, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's, like, intentional. Or yeah, Egypt comes back. <laughs> yeah, um, Absolutely. I don't know what the locust had to do with anything, but... Mm. I'm sure we could come up with something. Yeah. <laughs> Slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being rescued from slavery. Yeah, kind of that idea of bondage. In this case, it's literal bondage, right? But we've got kind of this bond. Slave to sin is like a real popular phrase in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Kind of hear that from Paul. Mm-hmm. Someone else had something? Uh, I haven't fully developed it in my head yet, but I'm thinking uh, we'll take baptism it. and the water dying to the old self and then the water collapsing in. Yeah, there's something there. Like, there's a lot of it, just the more you think about it, the more stuff kind of jumps out. And it's kind of like you said, it's not all totally put together in my head yet, but I just kept sitting there going, this is perfect to be talking about as we're leading into Easter and kind of thinking about this idea. It kind of, it connects. Um, but the problem for me, as I was preparing for this week, is what to make of Pharaoh. I don't care for, in the fact that in the video, he's like a cartoon and he's like a rock monster, and he's like, um, yeah. Like to me, to me, he feel like it makes him appear not human, but he's human. Like he's a person um, who's doing evil things, right? But if you look at it, when they go through the ten plagues, okay. So there's changes throughout the plagues, right? Because so, from the beginning, plagues affect everybody, and then later on. Plagues only affect Egyptians, and they don't affect Israelites. Um, And then sometimes Pharaoh's officials are like, hey, let them go, please, this is crazy. And sometimes they're not, like, they're like that before the locusts, actually. I don't know how we can connect to that, but they're there before the locusts. They're like, no, please, don't, don't let them do something else. But then for darkness, they don't say that. Like, is it just that Moses, when he writes this all down later, doesn't feel like mentioning that they said it at number nine? Or is there something about number nine that 
after the locusts, they're like, oh, well, it was just locusts, so we're fine. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but it's all these changes. But the one thing that sticks out is on plagues one to five, when uh, they tell us a story, after Pharaoh suffers under the plague, he comes back uh, to Moses or calls Moses in and begs Moses, please take the plagues away, beg your God for us. He's kind of, you know, it's almost kind of penitent, right? Like uh, almost acknowledging the power of the God of the Israelites. And then afterwards, it always tells us he hardens his heart and he's, you know, the rock stuff, right? And he gets angry and he says, ah, just kidding. It was all a joke. Um, but on six to ten, not all of them, but often, it's about three out of the five, three out of the last five, it tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, which I kind of struggle with in my head, like, well, what if he wasn't going to change his mind? Like, he probably was, right? Like, <laughs> he did it the other five times, but what if, right? Why is God suddenly saying, well, now, now it's over, and now we're going to give you the kind of justice that you don't like? Uh, to think about as a Christian. I think that's one of the things, tying back to our questions at the beginning, that's one of the things people struggle with when you're talking about embracing Christianity, this idea that, no, you've had your chances, Pharaoh, and now we're going to kill every firstborn in all of Egypt because of this guy. And right before that 10th plague, that's what happens. It's God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so I spent a lot of my time (laughs) working on this one section because it caused me so much trouble to kind of sort it out in my head. Totally, I was at uh, Frank Bowling's house yesterday for Micah's birthday, and I totally crashed the birthday party by throwing out a theological question to the preacher. (laughs) And everyone else was like, oh, this is interesting. Let's come talk about it. So I feel really bad now about doing it. Um, No, Micah won't. Frank will. No, (laughs) he won't invite me again. Um, (laughs) But no, and so I thought some kind of some things to think about um, as I've thrown it out to a lot of people over the last week. Generally, what I, and I've thrown out to a lot of different types of people intentionally, like people who have different theological outlooks. Because there's, but every single one, even the ones who were on opposite ends of a theological spectrum, have all said, "Yeah, that's really troublesome for me." Like I, tr- I struggle with that. There was no one who was like, "Oh yeah, that's no big deal." That's because, like when I told it to everyone, they're like, "Yeah, that is tough." Um, so some stuff to kind of think about. So number one, we know from the get-go. Um, we know from the get-go that God knows it's going to be a struggle um, with Pharaoh. Like, that's not in question. This was, I mentioned it earlier, but it's in Exodus 3. It's verse 19 and 20. He says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all of the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. Um, the video alludes to using Pharaoh's evil intent to crush him, like using evil to destroy evil, um, which I think I struggled with when I watched the video because Pharaoh looks like a monster and not a person, and it was jarring to me. But that's certainly true as well. And if we flip over, and I'll just read this so people don't have to be swapping all over the place. In Romans 1, uh, Paul writes about this a little bit, actually, um, when he's talking about God's wrath, which is always something we don't like to talk about. Um, but God's wrath against mankind, he says, and this is verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God is made plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So kind of, there's no reason to have not been bending to the will of God if you understand the will. Like, he's there, he's present in the world for us to see and, and should have seen at this point. Um, and it goes on to talk um, later down in that chapter about use it, allowing people to bring them, allowing man to bring himself to ruin through his sin, basically. Um, so I think that's definitely true, but there's still kind of this idea of grace that we all mention really liking about Christianity that feels really at odds, I think, with the 10 plagues. Um, Regardless, so then if you look at Exodus 9, following my chart here, verses 20, um, this is another one of those moments. The officials of Pharaoh, this is after the hail, before the locusts, uh, the officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside because they hear about the hail coming, but those who ignored the word of God left their slaves and livestock in the field. So, but I found, the reason I circled that one though is the officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord right? They've already seen enough signs to go, yeah, the God of the Israelites is the real deal, who we probably should be paying attention to at this point. So as soon as they hear that the plague of hail is coming, they're bringing everybody inside. They're not questioning anything, um, which then also brought me back to the death of the firstborn causing problems for my mind. Um, but I think this is especially interesting um, because also we have another example um, in the Old Testament, so it's comparable of divine justice being meted out against a large group of people. Um, and it's not Sodom and Gomorrah, which we could have talked about last week, which is also a great conversation. But uh, it's actually, if you look at the story of Jonah, right? So Jonah doesn't want to go, um, and he ends up going to Nineveh, and he preaches to the Assyrians and to the Ninevites, and their response is like distress and weeping, like, yes. We have wronged the God of Israel, which I think is crazy to think about. Like you go to a foreign land who have their own gods and you tell them the judgment of the God of the Israelites is coming. And they say, oh, he's right. And they tear their clothes and they put on sackcloth and they sit with ash on their heads and they are penitent. And God shows mercy, which of course makes Jonah mad, which is a different story. But what I think is interesting is that the judgment against the Ninevites is not like canceled. It's just delayed for several generations. So instead of, so there is grace, but that doesn't change the final outcome at some point. Um, so I think where I've landed, and you can decide for yourself whether this is satisfactory to you, right, <laughs> is that we don't like justice when it's being against our wishes or being done in a way that we feel is against someone innocent or in any of these ways, but we have to trust that God is just, that God's purposes are just. And at the end of all things, it all makes sense. And in the short term, sometimes things don't look right. But in the long term, um, justice is paid out for what has occurred. I mean, and the same thing is because there's no sacrifice of Christ for others, right? At this point, there's no way that um, they can be absolved of what they have done. And even though we can be absolved of our sins through Christ, it's not there's, no, there's still consequences to our actions, right? So for every action, no matter how positive or negative, there are consequences that follow as a result of it. So in the case of Jonah, we see a story where there are still consequences to the behavior of the Ninevites and the sins of the Ninevites, um, but their reaction throughout that story 
allows God to delay it for several generations. And I'm willing to bet that if Jonah 2.0 had been sent several generations later and it had been the same story, it probably would have been scooted back again. But in the story of Pharaoh and the Ten Plagues, that's not the case at all. There is no moment where Pharaoh is tearing his clothes and sitting in sackcloth and praising the God of the Israelites. In fact, if anything, we have the opposite happening, where he does beg off all the plagues each in turn, and he does uh, seem to suggest um, that the Israelite God is the true God before immediately flipping back as soon as he has received what he wants, which seems incredibly manipulative of God, which never seems like a good idea. which kind of also, finally, I'm just talking, I'm sorry we haven't had a question in a minute, ties in with this idea of the ten plagues as an assault on the Egyptian gods. Um, The idea that each of the plagues is kind of targeted at one of the major Egyptian gods, um, like Ra, the god of the sun, so God hits him with the plague of darkness. So the the Egyptians who are sitting around believing that their gods are somehow more powerful than the god of the Israelites are faced with the fact that the god of the Israelites just shut down the sun god. And he's not intending to let him back out until the Egyptians are penitent, okay? And there's like, there's like that for each of the 10 plagues, but I think probably the most interesting is number 10. So um, because, um, so most of this happens in the, I apologize, history moment. Most of this happens in the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. And an interesting factor about the Middle Kingdom is the Middle Kingdom is where we start to see a shift to where Pharaoh gets, starts getting rid of priests, like the office of Pharaoh starts getting rid of priests, consolidating power in a single person, and claiming to be a deity. Um, we don't know exactly the year that that happens, but we see that emerging over the Middle Kingdom. So during the time that the Ten Plagues are happening, Pharaoh is beginning to proclaim himself as the deity, actually uh, above the other Egyptian gods. So it's kind of the perfect closing act to actually attack the people that Pharaoh claims to protect as a god uh, and, the ha- and his own household and to say, well, I know that you think uh, you're in power and I know that you think that you're the god uh, around here, but that's not the way that this works. And so in many ways, um, the punishment that befalls Pharaoh when God hardens his heart in what I think we can safely assume from his other actions would have probably happened anyway, right? He's using his evil intent uh, to bring about his own destruction, which, like I said, is what the video said, but I don't know. I found a circular way to get there in my head, and I hope that helps you. <laughs> um, so, uh, but after the ten plagues, we kind of see this idea of uh, the, two, the two first words that they told us about. Um, we had re- um, redemption, so to purchase a slave's freedom, Right, and that certainly resonates with us, even kind of in a New Testament Christ perspective. And then the second one, salvation, right, to be rescued from danger. So we see very much through the story of the ten plagues uh, and the Exodus through the parting of the Red Sea, right, that um, God has rescued His people from danger; that He has remained true to His covenant and promise, despite perhaps in the shoes of Israelites at the time thinking, "Yeah, there's no way this is going to happen." Um, especially kind of where Egypt is historically in the Middle Kingdom, like you're sitting in the, in a, as a slave in probably the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time, and when your guy shows up to deliver you, Pharaoh says no, makes you do bricks without straw, and hardens things and makes it even more challenging for God to come in and take them out of that land, honestly in style, and crushing everything about Egypt on the way, even to where Egyptians are giving them their gold and silver on the way out the door so they can take it with them. Like the idea that God hasn't just shown that, you know, he can edge out the Egyptians in a fight, that he is 
on a whole different level than them. So this idea that he can save the Israelites from danger, he can still save us from danger, kind of got me thinking like when I come home from work and I've had a really crummy day and I'm really crabby about something, my first reaction is usually, this makes me a bad person, not to sit down on my couch and like have a prayer about it or not to go back to my room and like open my Bible. I'm like, I'm gonna just read my Bible for a minute, Ashley. I just need a second. It's usually, I just need a second. Let me sit on the couch and watch television or play on my phone or I don't know, something. Usually not do one of those things, which is ironic when we think back to our slinky and the amount of backstory we have of God freeing his people from danger, regardless of the levels of it. That says nothing of the days that I have that are absolutely terrible where I just want to kind of sit down. Um, So God hears the cry of his people um, and delivers them out of an epically terrible situation um, that we probably don't have any comparison for in our lives. So I think that that's impressive as well. So then part three uh, of this first section of Exodus Real quickly, we'll summarize, right? They get through the Red Sea, they're delivered, Pharaoh is dead, uh, and they have the song of Moses and Miriam. Love to hear old Moses sing. Uh, But these kind of four big points, right? God confronts evil, and these are on your chart. God confronts evil, God redeems the slaves, God leads his people to the promised land, and God dwells among his people. Like those are very vital for the people during the Exodus, but that's another thing that's pretty easy to transplant that to right now and it really resonate and feel timely. And then finally, part four, the desert. Um, yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, it doesn't take long once they cross the Red Sea after they're done singing for the Israelites to start complaining and to start saying, uh, you know, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? Which is just a mean thing to say to Moses. He's been working hard uh, and pretty offensive thing to suggest to God too. Um, but it doesn't take long for them to turn and almost seemingly forget everything that have, they've just seen happen, right? When they've followed the Passover uh, and they do the Passover every year from there on to remember what has happened and how God has saved them from this epically terrible situation, um, that somehow that's already out of their minds um, is crazy. So quick story, I think. Yeah, and then we're done. Um, so. Further on, we, we talked about my grad program at the beginning, so allow me to be dorky again for a minute. So further on in the program, I was in Houston. We had moved to Houston for one year to finish, to finish up my studies um, in Houston. Um, I have a bit of a bias against the state of Texas. Sorry, Gentries. Um, <laughs> I really actually despise the state of Texas. That's what everyone says. That's what everyone says. If I'd been anywhere else than Houston, I w- maybe would have liked it, but unfortunately, Houston's ruined it for everybody. Um, no, hate the state of Texas. Um, probably one of the worst years of my life like my wife was miserable and you know happy wife happy life unhappy wife miserable wife i don't know um so it was really bad uh just kind of confluence of unfortunate circumstances where you know i'm hating my program all of a sudden uh and my professors are jerks um which apparently is the norm but i guess i've been lucky up to that point um and Ashley's really unhappy and we're just like how can we get out of here like this is the worst thing possible Um, and it was so funny because like two years before that I'd been dead set on like I'm gonna finish this PhD I'm gonna be a history professor at some college I'm gonna sit in my office all day and write and occasionally teach a class which is of course not where I am now Um, and it's gonna be fascinating and I kept changing focuses because I kept getting excited about all these different things but then in this one year in Houston like I was totally checked out I was like I'm so 
so done with this. So one day I was walking to school. We lived downtown, so I was walking to school and I was gonna catch a ride on the train into campus. And it was just kinda, I was thinking about all these things. Like I can remember thinking through how terrible it was in my head, which is not a good thing to do when you're about to go sit in class for three hours, like this sucks. Um, and then it starts raining, which is just like, of course it started raining. And then I noticed that the rain was kind of warm and it wasn't rain at all but that a bird had just like diarrhea on my head. <laughs> Which if like you need any example how terrible it was, I, can, I noticed it when it like, I ran down onto my glasses and I was just like, I clean my glasses. I was like, that is not water. <laughs> so I'm like checking like, <sighs> like disgusting. And then the train pulls up. So it's like, great, I'll just get on the train like this. So I step on the train, like everyone else is standing over here. <laughs> I'm over here by myself with my bird stuff and I get to school like I still haven't had a chance to like go anywhere to go to the restroom and like try to clean so I finally I'm like walking into school like covered in bird poop I had to go to the restroom like pretty much gave myself a shower in the sink and came in dripping wet and they were all just like what are you doing it's like a bird pooped on my head and they were just like okay I don't know if they believe me or not but it was strange because to me that moment still stands out in my head is the moment that like I went I texted Ashley from heart from school and then told her when we got home I was like all right we're done we're gonna cut and run this is the worst thing ever um, and I quit and like moved home and I got a job at Harding to kind of pay the bills until I figured out what I was gonna do I mean I ended up finishing but it's interesting because I would have never wound up at Harding or certainly not administrating because that was nowhere in my plans to be a school administrator for middle school students if I hadn't gone through that incredibly weird route to get there. Like if I had just finished my PhD at Memphis, I would not have gone, all right, now let me go get a job at Harding and we'll just see what happens. But because of that really strange route, that's where I wound up. And I think that's what we're gonna see with the Israelites as well, right? It's easy to forget all the really weird backwards sideways steps in a process but then when you kind of get some closure at the end of a moment and you're able to look back on it, you're able to say, oh, well, that was this and that was that. But you kind of have to be at the end to get that. And that's the problem for our Israelite friends is they're not at the end and they're not for many, many years. Um, but when you see every step in the process, you can see God's plan for them and him fulfilling that covenant all along the way. But when they're in the process, it doesn't always feel that way. So I always try to remember that when I'm looking at the Israelites complaining pretty much constantly the rest of the Torah. I'm like, yeah, I would probably be doing that too. I know that I did do that in my life, so it makes total sense. So next week we'll get into the second part of Exodus. We'll see the Ten Commandments and the Tabernacle and some other exciting stuff. But that's all I've got for today. All right, so thank you to Scott for doing a fabulous job. Really enjoyed uh, his story there at the end about the bird. I didn't even know that, so that's that's great. I think that is really like what he talks about with this, this slinky uh, in a historical perspective or this sort of repeating and shading of present events that, you know, that have pieces of past events in them and that certainly we see, we see it in the first part of, of Genesis, sorry, the second part of Genesis that you have these patriarchs, these, these huge names of uh, Israel that they repeat mistakes over and over and over and that God is faithful to his promises to them. And I think that's history. So we have men and women making mistakes over and over and God being faithful to those promises. I think the, the thing that uh, Scott is bringing up though is, is that in the present moment, it's very difficult to see God sometimes. And so as we're making mistakes and we are in that time punished for them or our lives uh, fall into 
struggles because of our mistakes, it's very easy to say, well, where is God in this moment? Uh, we don't we don't want to necessarily take credit for the things that aren't uh, going well, even if we're you know living destructive lives. So where is God? You know, where is God in all this? And I, I, I struggle to see God's providence in this moment. And yet God has an awareness of time, certainly, since he exists outside of it, that is far better than us. And almost like the writer of a six-season television series, God understands where the story is going. And so he knows where the story arc is going to lead the characters, as it were, in Genesis and Exodus. And of course, it leads to the cross, and it leads to redemption in a true sense, and salvation in a true and absolute sense. And I think that's the beauty of, of studying books like this, is to see the first part of the story and to see the struggles that are there and to reflect on that uh, ourselves, and that if we have struggles, we have things that we don't see God in, that God has proved himself faithful time and time again. Over a thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, four thousand years ago, God has been faithful and remains faithful. Um, so I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank Scott again for teaching. Next week we'll be back with the second part of Exodus. So the, the final part of the wandering in the wilderness. I think we have the golden calf, Ten Commandments, a lot of really interesting stuff there. And then leading up into the promised land. Of course, then we'll go into Leviticus and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. I really hope that you're back with us for those. Peter Snell will be teaching with us next week. Peter is uh, excellent. Look forward to him teaching. I hope you have a great week. We will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.